Well, if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians is a small letter about midway through the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul. For the past couple months, as a church, we've been working our way through this beautiful and profound letter. And it just so happens that the text, the portion of Colossians that we are at today is a very appropriate portion of Scripture for the Sunday that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. I have two goals today. I'm going to be very clear about that. I'm not going to try and be manipulative or come around at the end like a jack-in-the-box and pounce on you. I have two goals today, and I'm making two assumptions that I think are true. Those assumptions are that this room is filled with two types of people, those that are Christians, that know Jesus, that have repented of their sin, that believe in him, and through their life are bearing fruit and giving evidence of the genuineness of their faith. And then the other assumption that I'm making is that in a crowd this size, that there are likely people, very likely, that do not know Jesus. Some of you may be aware of that fact, and you're here investigating Christianity or trying out Christianity or church. Maybe you were invited by a friend, and you're honest in where you are, and you're not convinced of the claims of Christianity, and I am so glad that you are here. I was exactly where you were at one point in my life. And also within that group of people who are not yet Christians, there are people here in our culture, especially in the Bible Belt, is full of them, as there are people in this room who are, who are what I would classify as cultural Christians. You may think you're a Christian, but you are not. I'm also very glad that you are here, but I'm not going to pull any punches. Um, our goal is not to uh, preach a sweet, helpful pragmatic, functional message or to you know, send you on your way to an egg hunt. My goal is to clearly and simply commend the work of Christ on a cross before you and to make it very clear, hopefully in warmth and clarity, but conviction. And so to do that, I'm going to preach out of the scriptures. We believe that the Bible is supreme, that it is breathed out by God. And therefore, it has total authority over our lives, that it is completely right in everything that it affirms, and that it is sufficient for us to know Christ. And so everything we do here at Crosspoint is hopefully based out of the Bible, and all of our preaching and teaching is straight from the Bible. And so I'm going to work my way through these verses, and I'm going to come back to them again and again, and I'm going to bring in some other scriptures as well. But my prayer is is that even if you're not particularly familiar with hearing preaching or biblical preaching, that you will be able to follow along. So what I'm going to do first is I'm going to read this passage, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go back through this passage and unpack it. Now, I warn you that there will be clothes left in the suitcase today. We are just going to be skimming across the surface of all the truth that is contained in these beautiful sentences. But I pray that what we do unpack will hit our hearts like an arrow filled with grace. Well, let's, pray, or let's read Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 8 and read through 15. The Apostle Paul has been writing this letter to the Colossians, and the overarching theme of Colossians is that Christ is supreme and sufficient. Much like in our age, there are many things, there were many things that were tugging on the Colossian Christians to try and get them to, yes, accept Jesus, but also then to move on to some other higher knowledge, whatever that may be, whether it be the addition of some Old Testament Jewish practice like some dietary law or some uh, thing like circumcision or whatever it may be or whether it be some sort of super spiritual, uh, kind of quasi-esoteric, higher level of learning that you must attain to before you really become 
uh, in the know or saved. And Paul was refuting that. And he's writing to the Colossians, reminding them of the gospel, the pure and simple gospel, that salvation is found in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, and that we are saved by what Christ did on the cross and nothing else, and our faith in that. And so he's reminding them of that and trying to, trying to again ground them in the simplicity of faith in Christ alone and the supremacy and the sufficiency of that. And so he is refuting teachers who are trying to drag them away. The situation is the same today. We are bombarded with a sort of higher learning, kind of an enlightenment, an American arrogance that says that, well, the, the biblical view of Christianity is really sort of antiquated and old and historic and we need to add something to it, whatever it is. And Paul is refuting that to the Colossians and he is refuting it to us today as well. So let's read in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Verse 11, In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He Set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Well, these are some of the most important words ever written. And so we need to pray. I need help to speak on these things. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today with such thankfulness, such awe that you, as Sarah Beth so beautifully played in that ancient hymn of the church, that you, for those of us that have repented and believed in you, that you have saved us, that you have made us your people by what Christ did on the cross. But even though that is the case for some of us, God, we still are mixed up in confused people. We are very much in process, and so therefore we need your help. I, in particular, need your help to even think about and speak publicly on these issues because they are huge and weighty and amazing. I confess, Lord, that my life is full of hypocrisy and contradiction. And so, Lord, I need your grace to even stand before these people And it is only because of your kindness that you are not knocking me down right now and shutting my mouth and making me mute. And so, Lord, would you now work through my feeble words and my lack of wisdom and my self-absorption and our distraction as a people and our self-absorption and our distraction and our silliness And all of the things that want to cloud against us and press in and strip our ability to see and savor Jesus. Father, by your Holy Spirit, would you come now into this room? And would you let the eternal word of God, Christ himself, stand forth from the written word of God. 
by the power of the Spirit, and to those that know you, would you cause us to see Christ today so that we might worship Him and so that we might display His grace to a world. And for those that do not know you in this room, God, would you, as Peter says in his letter to the church, would you cause them to be born again by the living and abiding Word today? Would you make them your people? I pray, God, that these things would happen by your grace and by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask and hopefully answer four questions today from this text. And I'll just put those up on the screen real quickly so that you can get a sense of where we're going, and then we're going to go back through them. The first question I want to answer that I think this text hits on is, what is wrong with us. What's wrong with us? That's the problem. The second question that I think this text hits on that I think we need to answer is what has God done to make things right? What is God's solution for the problem of human sin and fallenness and rebellion? And the third question that we'll answer is through what means or how does God actually save people in Christ? How does he do that? Through what means does God save people in Christ? And then the fourth question that I am going to ask and hopefully answer today is what are now the implications of the cross and the resurrection for both the Christian and the unbeliever? And so to do that, we're going to sort of dive into the middle of this text and we're going to look at one particular phrase and then we're going to jump up to the top of the text at the beginning of where we read in verse 11 about circumcision and then after we kind of handle that, it's going to get fun. Then we're going to go back down to the end. So we're going to go middle, beginning, end. You confused? All right, good. I'm not. Hopefully we'll uh, make it clear as we go. All right. What is wrong with us? Hopefully I don't need to do much work to tell you that the way things are in the world is not the way things should be. That the culture, the world, that everything in it is broken, that human uh, culture that our hearts are fallen in our natural state, and this is because of our sin and rebellion against God. Go to verse 13 there. Paul says this. He says a, an important phrase. He's speaking now. This is important that you see this. He's not just talking to the Colossians. This letter is written for all time. It has an eternal view in it. And he says in verse, six, uh, verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses. The Bible is clear there and in many other parts. I could, in fact, we could talk a whole Sunday. In fact, we could do a whole series on the doctrine of original and, and universal sin that every human being has rebelled against God. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, I don't have it up on the screen, but it says that through one man, Adam, death entered through his sin and that all of us have sinned. All of us have participated in that and therefore the consequences of our rebellion against God has spread throughout all humanity and we are physically alive for the time being. All of us will eventually die. We may be emotionally alive for the time being, but we are naturally in our state as people that are children, sons and daughters of Adam. We are guilty. We are born separated from God in sin. This is very hard for the average American to grasp because we are the most seemingly alive culture in the history of civilization. We've invented incredible things. We have all sorts of, 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 of different things in our culture that make us feel alive. We exercise, we eat, we buy stuff. We are the most creative culture. And so it seems like we are alive, but in reality we are because of every one of, every one of us have participated in this. The Bible is clear. Read Romans 3. That all of us have rebelled against God's holiness and that that has brought with it not just incapacitation or a diminishment of who we are, but it has brought with it the consequence of spiritual death that unless it is dealt with through faith in Christ will ultimately lead to eternal separation from God forever. Listen to a commentator. His name is John Stott. He is an English statesman, pastor, and theologian. He is a bishop in the Anglican Church in England. 
a great man. I think he's in his 80s or 90s now, one of the great theologians of the previous century and this one. This is what John Stott says about this issue of the state of humanity, all humanity, before we come to Christ. He says, lots of people who make no Christian profession whatever, who even openly repudiate Jesus Christ, appear to be very much alive. One has the vigorous body of an athlete. Another, the lively mind of a scholar. A third, the vivacious personality of a film star. Are we to say that such people, if Christ has not saved them, are dead? Yes. Indeed, we must and do say this very thing. For in the sphere which matters supremely, which is neither, which is neither the body nor the mind nor the personality, but the soul, they have no life. And you can tell it. And by the way, uh, Stott is getting his views from the Bible. He's not just making this up. This is not just some antiquated historic Christian doctrine. This is the agreement of every Christian theologian in the ages. He goes on to say, and you can tell it about these people, they're blind to the glory of Jesus Christ and deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They have no love for God, no sensitive awareness of his personal reality, no leaping of their spirit towards him in the cry, Abba, Father, no longing for fellowship with his people. They are as unresponsive to him as a corpse. So we should not hesitate to affirm that a life without God, however physically fit and mentally alert the person may be, is a living death. And that those who live it are dead even while they are living. Now it's easy to see somebody who openly repudiates God, but this is also true of the seemingly religious person who has not truly received Christ through repentance and belief. They are all of us, before we come to Christ in genuine faith, are spiritually dead That's the problem with humanity. And there are consequences, clear consequences, clear biblical consequences of this death. And those two consequences, we could again spend a lot of time on this, is number one, hear me on this, friends, this is important, that because of our spiritual death, we are completely unable to come to Christ on our own. The Bible says it very clearly in the book of Romans and in other places, but let me just commend you to one verse, Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8 says, this is Paul speaking, he says, for the mind that is set on the flesh, and by the way, that is sort of a Bible Pauline sort of way of saying a person who is not a Christian. It's not a Christian who's just kind of having a bad day and is thinking bad thoughts. But when he talks about the mind that is set on the flesh, he is delineating between the flesh and the spirit, non-Christian and Christian. And he says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, this is hard for us because there seem to be some people who want to please God. But in the end, we find out that they're not Christians. Why is that? Well, ultimately, and we could spend some time on this, that ultimately at the bottom of their desire to do good was really self-absorption and not a desire to honor Christ. They are dead. We are all dead. This is all of us. Whether we are a terrorist that flies planes into buildings or whether we are a self-righteous, self-absorbed, seemingly relativistically moral person in America, all of us are born spiritually dead and we are completely unable to save ourselves that's the first consequence and the second consequence and this is again not something that you hear very often in american churches is that the consequences of that are eternal torment and separation from god again the bible is clear it's not preached much in our churches but jesus himself says friends in mark chapter 9 that there is a real thing called hell where the worm does not die And the fire is not quenched. And so the problem is human rebellion. The consequences of that rebellion are eternal separation from God forever and a complete inability to save ourselves. So what is wrong with us in the world? We have rebelled against God through sin and rebellion against his lordship. And this rebellion brings with it the consequences of spiritual death and the complete inability to save ourselves and the inevitable, listen friends, the inevitable and sure reality of a judgment and eternal torment and separation from God forever unless God intervenes, which he does. And that brings us to our second question. What has God done to make things right? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 13 again. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God 
made alive together with him. That with him meaning Jesus. God makes you alive together with Christ. Now, how does he do this? Well, let's go back up to verse 11. And if you were paying attention when I read the scriptures through the first time, you may have noticed that sort of... um, Seemingly in our culture, embarrassing, sort of antiquated word, circumcision. In verse 11, it says, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, you may be wondering, what in the world are we talking about circumcision on for Easter? So far, we have covered hell and circumcision. Thanks for your Easter message, Brad. (laughs) Probably the only place where you hear those things together on an Easter Sunday morning. Well, bear with me and let me explain the significance of circumcision in the Bible. In the Old Testament, God creates everything. Of course, Genesis 1, he creates the world and everything in it. We read then in the next couple chapters where he creates Adam and Eve and then they begin to populate the earth. Of course, they fall in the garden and sin has entered into humanity. Death has spread everywhere, as it says in Romans. We are all completely separated from God, spiritually unable to save save ourselves. Uh, God hits the control, delete button, starts over again in Genesis chapter 6 and 7 with Noah because they were so wicked that he needed to do this thing again. Starts again with Noah, but again, uh, still that hasn't removed sin from humanity. And so, so everybody in the world at that time is just a bunch of, of idolatrous, rebellious sinners. And in Genesis chapter 11 and 12, then through the rest of Genesis is the account of how God chooses one man, one man, a man named Abram, who then later on in Genesis 17, he calls Abraham. He chooses him not because Abraham was good in any way of his own. In fact, Abram was wandering around in the desert worshiping the stars and God through his grace, snags Abraham and appears to him, speaks to him and says, you are my man. Look up in the heavens. You see all the stars. You are going to have uh, 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 you're going to have children that will outnumber those stars. And of course we learned, didn't we learn that song in Sunday school for those of us who grew up in church? Father Abraham had, come on, many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham and I am one of them. And so are you okay? No, enough of that. You guys obviously were not paying attention that day in Sunday school. But here's the covenant, here's the sign that God makes with Abraham to distinguish him from all the other peoples in the earth. And this would have been quite a moment, uh, I would imagine, if you're Abraham. He's in his 90s by now. And in Genesis 17, uh, God says to Abraham, by the way, he changes his name to Abraham, and he says, this is the covenant that I'm going to make with you. You and all of your male servants and your whole household, all the men that come from your line, are going to have to be circumcised. Thanks, God. And so from that point on, circumcision in the Old Testament becomes the mark, the sign God does it. He institutes this covenant of circumcision and makes a people who were not his people, his people, through his grace, through his initiative, through his love, so that through these people, he could bless all the peoples of the earth and spread the message of the good news that we now know about in the New Testament through Jesus. So God makes his people through circumcision. So when you read in the Bible, uncircumcision and circumcision, Don't think of sort of the gruesome medical procedure. Think of Christian and non-Christian, right? Uncircumcised, not Christian, circumcised Christian, because it was the mark of who was God's people in the Old Testament. And that's still very much on the minds of Paul, who is an ethnic Jew, a child of Abraham, and the people that he would have been speaking to. And so he says to them that in him you also were circumcised, But in this particular instance, he's talking probably not to Jews. He's talking to just pagan, dirty, hairy-legged, pork-eating Gentiles like us. And he's saying that you are circumcised now too. You are God's people, not because of some physical circumcision or the cutting away of a little bit of flesh, but you were brought into this because of the cutting away of Christ's flesh. And he actually uses the analogy of Christ was... His whole body was, in a sense, cut, was circumcised on the cross for you. His flesh was put off for you. God made you His people, not by some symbolic Old Testament ritual, but by the cross. Christ was cut. He was, in a sense, spiritually, physically crucified. The analogy is circumcised for you, making you into a Christian by His death 
on the cross. So the first answer to that question is, how does God make things right? He puts Christ forward as a sacrifice for our sins. Romans chapter 3. Let me just read this quickly. Don't flip there. Just We'll have it on the screen. Romans chapter 3. Martin Luther, the great reformer, when he was reading the Bible really for the first time, and up to that point had been sort of an ignorant Catholic monk, and began to read the book of Romans, the letter of Romans, the chapel of Wittenberg in Germany, came across this letter to Romans. He came across this third chapter of Romans, and he came across these few verses in Romans and said that this here was the, the center of the whole Bible. And in verse 21, Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. In other words, the whole Old Testament is speaking. It's, it's pointing us to Christ. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We just talked about that. What's wrong with us? We have all sinned and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And here it is, verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And so what's happening here is Paul is saying is that God is putting Christ forward to be, as Paul says in Colossians, his whole body circumcised or cut so that we, he would make us into his people just like he symbolically made the nation of Israel into his people in the Old Testament. And so God is, and here's the spiritual picture, here's the word picture, God is putting Jesus forward to absorb the punishment of everyone who would repent and believe. Let me give you a word picture. Think of a, a junior high class and think of uh, think of 30 students in a class and a uh, it's test day and one of the students in the class has somehow got into the teacher's file and has stolen the answers to the test but uh, they don't just stop with that one answer sheet that this one little kid this one little mischievous seventh grader passes out the answers to the test, but really it's wrong. I mean, they can't even get the answers right. So all the kids take the test and they mess it up. They think they have the right answers, but they've cheated. They've deceived the teacher. Seemingly, they think so. Except for one kid in the class. One kid remains spotless from this, this, uh, this, this uh, whole plot by the seventh grade class to cheat on this test. And the teacher, of course, knowing... What is going on looks and realizes that the kids have cheated on this test and they couldn't even get it right. They took the wrong answer key, messed it all up, but they all have the same answers and they were all right. You know, like on Scantron, if you're cheating from the kid next to you and you get one of them right, then you get sort of all of the rest of them right. Evidently, nobody even know what I'm talking about, but I certainly know what I'm talking about on that. Don't, act, don't even act like you didn't look. Okay. All right. Anyway, I see what I'm dealing with. I've got more work to do about... Uh, Understanding our own sinfulness. But anyway, for those of you, and I've heard, sometimes people cheat. But anyway, the teacher looks and, they say, and the teacher says to the class, says that, obviously you have cheated. Tell me who the person is that stole the test. Or else all of you get punished. Everybody in this room is going to get smoked. You're all going to get expelled. You're all going to get kicked out of school. And you're not going to be able to college. And you won't be able to get a good job. And, and you'll be homeless. I mean, you know how teachers extrapolate. And every kid in that room is silent because they're fearful. The one kid that stole it knows he's guilty. And every other kid in that room, save the one who remained righteous, is scared because they know they, they also participated in this plot of deception. But what happens is that this one innocent seventh grader raises his hand and says, I, I did it. I did it. Punish me. Don't punish the whole class. Punish me. And that's the picture of what's happening here in Romans is, is that God is putting Jesus forward. And Jesus isn't just being picked out in ignorance. He is, he is as he says in the Gospels, willingly laying down his life for the sin of all mankind. And he is absorbing. That's what this word propitiation means. He is absorbing the punishment that should be ours. But this is important, friends. This is important. He only absorbs the punishment for those who will repent and believe. This is not a universal atonement. This does not save 
everyone. It only saves those who will repent and trust and believe in his sacrifice, his absorption of God's punishment against human sin for us. That's who that believes. The punishment still remains on those who do not repent and believe in Jesus. Some of you may say, well, that sounds harsh, Brad. All this talk about judgment and hell and all these hard things. Friends, it's the kindest thing I can do to you for some of you that have grown up in church culture and never heard about the justice and the wrath and the holiness of God. Jesus says very clearly in John chapter 3, at the end of that chapter, listen to these words, friends. He says in John chapter 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so Christ absorbs the justice of God for those that repent and believe. And you may say, well, why? This is an objection that I had when I was coming to Christ as an 18-year-old. March 16, 1989, 21 years ago. In fact, a couple people in this church sent me a text message that day. I had forgot that it was the day that I came to Christ they sent me a text message saying, happy birthday. And I looked at it and said, well, I'm, this isn't my birthday, but I quickly realized that it was. This was one of the objections that I had when I was coming to Christ. Well, if God is God, why can't he just sort of wipe away? I mean, why does he have to punish even Jesus or unbelievers? Why can't he just kind of just give us all sort of a mulligan? Well, friends, we understand how justice works on the human level. Suppose... And I get this analogy from a book called The Reason for God by Timothy Keller. Suppose, and I I highly commend that book to you, The Reason for God by Tim Keller. He's a pastor in New York City doing an amazing work. But he presents this analogy of if you were to borrow my car and uh, I was to loan you my car and you were pulling out of my driveway and as you were pulling out of my driveway, you ran over my gate. You broke, you ran over my fence. Well, at that point, there would be three options. Either I could demand that you pay to have the fence replaced completely, or that's option number one, or option number two is I could just say, ah, well, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, Uh, I'll fix it. Or option number three would be that somehow you and I kind of share the cost. But here, listen, friends, this is very important. In each one of those options, a cost is absorbed by somebody. The fence doesn't just go poof. The offense, the wrongdoing doesn't just go, doesn't just, doesn't just magically, you know, go in some Disney video and fly off in the form of a little guy in a green suit. It, it, the cost is there. Somebody has to pay. Somebody has to absorb the cost. Either you absorb it because you ran over my fence and you need to pay it back, or I absorb it because I have to restore the fence or we somehow share this cost. And so all of us understand that when there is an offense, that there is a cost that is borne by somebody. And on the cross, Christ is bearing, He is absorbing, He is, he is maintaining the justice and the supremacy and the holiness of God by absorbing the cost of divine justice and goodness and holiness for those that will repent and believe. And that brings us to my third question. Talked about what's the problem with us. Sin is the problem. How does God make things right? He makes things right by pouring out his punishment for those that will repent and believe on Christ, on the cross. But friends, none of that means anything unless you get this third point. Through what means does God save people by Christ's sacrifice? Go back to verse 12 of Colossians. How does God actually save us. Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him, listen to this, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And so God only saves those who through faith put their trust in what Christ did for them. I can't be any clearer. Only those who repent and believe in Jesus are those that receive the benefits of Christ's work on the cross and are made alive again. So what is saving faith? Friends, listen to me, because we live in the land of silly 
cultural, nominal Christianity where preachers get up and they read virtuous stories that have nothing to do with biblical Christianity. Hear me on this. I plead with you. Hear me on this. Saving faith is not merely agreement with Christian morality. Saving faith is not just a cognitive uh, assent to the tenets of the doctrines of Christianity. Saving faith is putting your trust, it is putting the weight of your life in the work of Christ. It's not perfection, it's not your works, it is you trusting. Jesus puts it this way in the Gospels. In Matthew 13, he says, There was a man who found a pearl in a field, and he went and he sold all that he had so that he might have that pearl of great price. It is an embracing, a treasuring, a longing for the person and the work of Christ, not so that you just agree with it, because the Bible says in James that even the demons believe and tremble. But saving faith is treasuring. It is putting the weight of your life. It is building your marriage. It is building your job. It is building your whole life. It is building your sexuality. It is building your language. It is building your recreation. Everything on the fact that Jesus rose from you. And if He had not done it, there would be no hope. That is saving faith. Church attendance, good works, catechisms, liturgies, creeds, Biblical knowledge, singing, sermons, none of it saves us. Saving faith is embracing, trusting with the full force of our life. The work of Christ on the cross. Now you may be saying, if you've been paying attention, and, and I, hope, I hope you have, you may be realizing the obvious seeming contradiction here the seeming paradox if you will you may be saying well, well time out time out you started this thing off by saying that we are dead in our trespasses and sins and you read that verse in Romans where it says that we cannot please God we cannot we cannot submit to God's law and so how now can we exercise faith because where does that come from? We don't, we don't have the faith. We're dead. I mean, I agree with what you're saying. It is the testimony of all of humanity. Just look at culture. We are dead in our sins. Now, how can you be saying that we now need to exercise faith? How can we have faith and repentance when we can do nothing to please God? Friends, if you have picked up on that, you, you, you are astute. And see me at the door. I'm going to give you a star on your test sheet today. You're right. You're right. And we need to feel the weight of the impossibility of that. Jesus, in his encounter with the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, says that you need to give everything you have, young man. Lay it down and follow me. And when that young man couldn't do this, and that, that, by the way, that parable, that story, it's not a parable, that story, that true, real interaction with Jesus and that young man is not so much about wealth and money. It's more about idolatry in our hearts that all of us face, whether we are wealthy or not. And Jesus, in discussing with his disciples that interaction, just moments after his disciples say, well, wait a minute, if this guy can't be saved, because you have to realize the mindset of the culture at that time, wealth and prestige is what kind of bought you status and salvation in that culture. And Jesus here just refuted that. He just kicked the legs out from underneath that table and said, look, you, you, you have to sell everything you have and humble yourself and pick up your cross and follow me. And this man couldn't do that. And now the disciples are a little bit flummoxed and they're saying, well, how can anybody be saved? And Jesus picks up on their instinct there and he says, no, no, it's harder for a rich man or somebody that's leaning on themselves to be saved than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which, by the way, is impossible. And Jesus says, you're right. He says, it is impossible with man, but with God it is possible. It is impossible for you to save yourself. It is impossible for you to drum up enough faith and spiritual oomph to make yourself right before God. It is impossible for man, dead in his trespasses, hostile to God to save himself. But with God, all things are possible. This is what Augustine, the bishop, the church father said in the late 300s and early 400s. Augustine was the a bishop of North Africa, 
And he uttered this phrase in one of his writings that has become one of the great statements in church history. He said, give what you command and command what you will. What he is saying is, listen to me, what Augustine is saying is, is that God is the one who gives the faith and the repentance that we need to trust in Christ. It's not something that we gin up or bring to the table. It's not like God does 99% of the work and then we bring the 1% catalyst of our own self. It is God who gives it. And so right here, Augustine is understanding the quandary of the biblical paradox of the death of the sinner and the necessity of faith. And Augustine is saying in his helpless state, God, I cannot do it. You are going to have to give the very thing that you are commanding me to have that I don't have. You have to do it. You have to give me what you're saying I don't have, what I need, because I don't have it. Give me the faith and the repentance. Friends, right now, if you are doubting whether or not you are truly a Christian, and you are wondering if you even have the faith and repentance to believe in Christ and trust and embrace Him right now, you, if that is on your heart right now, as Jesus says in the Gospels, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you are even thinking about this right now, I believe that is evidence of the Holy Spirit that He is giving you the faith to believe in Him. So believe in Him. Embrace Him. Embrace Him with your heart and your mind and your soul. And your life. George Whitfield, one of my um, heroes in church history, I've read his biography. He was a great preacher in the early years of the founding of America in the 1700s. He was a great friend of, of uh, Charles and John Wesley. Although later in their years they differed a little bit theologically, Whitfield, many would say, is the greatest preacher in the history of America. He preached to crowds in colonial America that numbered in the thousands. In fact, there's one instance where his voice had such legendary, legendary uh, ring that literally a crowd of 30 or 40,000 people could hear him without amplification. And where he was in this particular instance was in a sort of river valley, and it was reported that they could hear him up to a mile away. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but there are many documentaries of and written accounts of how powerful he was as a preacher had a great influence on many of the founding fathers he had a great influence on benjamin franklin who by the way was an atheist and never confessed christianity that we know but benjamin franklin even in in his doubt would come to hear whitfield preach and would be moved to tears by the preaching of whitfield whitfield would preach morning noon at night and in the evenings he would cough up blood because he was so worn out he'd get up the next day and he'd preach preached thousands of sermons to literally thousands of people. And his biblical preaching, and all historians would note this, is one of the forces that shaped the early ethic of the American Constitution and our founding fathers. In fact, there is a county in Georgia named after George Whitfield. He is one of the great, great uh, Christians in American history and probably the greatest preacher in American history. This is what Whitfield said in one of his sermons. Now listen, this language is hard. It's a bit antiquated, and remember as I'm reading it, if you don't like it, that it is probably the greatest preacher in American history saying these words. So get mad at him, not me. This is what he says. No, I'm going to own it. Get get mad at whoever. Get mad at God, because it's his truth. Listen Listen to what Brother Whitfield says. Come, ye dead, Christless, unconverted sinners. Come and see the place where they laid the body of the deceased Lazarus. And let me kind of bring you into the story if you're not familiar with it. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus's who had died in the Gospel of John. John chapter 11, I believe it is. And Jesus took his sweet time to get to Lazarus when he heard that he was sick. And and by the time he got there, Lazarus had died. He had been in the tomb for four days. And Jesus, walking up to the tomb of Lazarus, says to the tomb, he says to Lazarus, who is dead, he says, Lazarus, come forth. And he commands Lazarus to do in his dead state what he, that which he cannot do, but through the, the call of Christ, the call created what it commanded, and Lazarus came back to life in that instant. And I believe that story is in the Bible, not just to show that Jesus has power over the physical life and death, but to also give us a picture of how people come to Christ. Jesus calls, and his call creates the command, what it commands. 
And so Brother Whitfield writes, Come ye dead Christ, Christless unconverted sinners, come and see the place where they laid the body of the deceased Lazarus. Behold him laid out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, locked up and stinking in a dark cave with a great stone placed on top of it. View him again and again. Go nearer to him. Be not afraid. Smell him. Ah! How he stinketh. Stop there now. Pause a while. And whilst thou art gazing upon the corpse of Lazarus, give me leave to tell thee with great plainness, but greater love, that this dead, bound, entombed, stinking carcass is but a faint representation of thy poor soul in its natural state. For whether thou believest or not, Thy spirit which thou bearest about with thee, sepulchred, which sepulchre is a word for a burial place, sepulchred in flesh and blood, is as literally dead to God and as truly dead in trespasses and sins as the body of Lazarus was in the cave. Was he bound hand and foot with grave clothes? So art thou bound hand and foot with thy corruptions. And as a stone was laid on the sepulcher, so is there a stone of unbelief upon thy stupid heart. Perhaps thou hast lain in this state not only for four days, as Lazarus did, but many years, stinking in God's nostrils. And what is still more affecting thou art, as unable to raise thyself out of this loathsome dead state to a life of righteousness and true holiness, as ever Lazarus was to raise himself from the cave in which he lay so long. Thou mayest try to try the power of thine own boasted free will and the force and energy of moral persuasion and rational arguments, which, without all doubt, have their proper place in religion. But all thy efforts exerted with never so much vigor, will prove quite fruitless and abortive till that same Jesus who said, Take away the stone and cried, Lazarus, come forth. Also, quicken you. Friends, what Whitfield is saying is that the faith and the repentance that you need to trust and embrace Christ come with the call of Christ that may be on your heart right now. The Lord gives in His call what He commands. Are you sensing that Christ is calling you right now? Turn and trust and repent in Jesus. Don't just agree with Christianity. Don't just be a good American. Turn and trust and feel the weight of your helplessness without Christ. And to him who has ears to hear, let him hear and trust in Christ today. Friend, are you a Christian? And you've kind of grown lazy and sort of self-sufficient in your faith and God has really just become kind of a functional, moralistic deity to you? Do you need a fresh reminder of your helplessness before God and thereby realize what Christ did for you so that you will be again awed and amazed by the cross and the grace? In fact, the amazing grace as we heard played on that violin earlier. Do you need to be reminded again and again of what Christ did for you so that you would worship him and display his glory and become an aroma of Christ? Let Whitfield's words wreck you. And then cause you to get up. Faith and worship. The last question, and I move quickly. I know the hour is late. What are the implications of the cross for those who believe? Well, we read it, didn't we? He made us alive, verse 13, together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He canceled the record of debt. He forgave us our trespasses. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So what are the implications of the cross and the resurrection for those who would believe in Jesus? 
You are free. You are free now to actually live the way God intended you to live. You're free to enjoy life. You're free to now give your life in response to God and to enjoy the things that you were intended to joy, enjoy. You're free to give your heart to holiness and righteousness, which is actually more pleasurable than any broken form of it. If your sexual life is broken, you are free to now find pleasure in marriage and life with one husband or wife. If your life is a wreck financially, you are now free to realize that this world and the system upon which we're based is not where true pleasure lies, but you are now free to give and find more pleasure in giving than receiving. Are you racked with insecurity and the fear of man, which has been one of my great battles in my life? You are free to realize that your eternity is secure with Christ and Christ has made you his own and your worth and value is wrapped up in what Christ did for you on the cross and not in the opinion of a friend or an enemy. You're free. If you have repented and believed. Well, let's pray. Father, we, we need you now to come and to take my words and apply them to our hearts. Holy Spirit, I ask you to do two things. To the Christian, come and bring humility and worship and awe and joy and confidence and security. To to the person who has not truly repented and believed, if they are honest about that, God, would you right now take their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh? Would you give them what you command them to have, which they cannot produce on their own, which is faith and repentance? And would they embrace Jesus? Friend, would you see him? Would you see him for what he is? Would you realize who Christ is and would you embrace him? Would you put the trust of your life in him? Friend, if, you, if you've grown up in church and it's become evident to you that you have not truly trusted in Christ, but you've just kind of been swept along with the tidal wave of cultural Christianity and its morality, but haven't truly trusted in Christ... Would you be honest today and realize that you need to trust in Jesus with faith, with saving faith, where you treasure what he has done for you, that then restores you and makes you able to enjoy him forever and the life that God intended for you. Would you do that now? And God, as we sing a song or two of response, would you now resist Help us resist the temptation to rush, to get restless. And would you help us for these next few minutes worship you, respond to you in joy and humility and awe and wonder or in saving faith, faith and repentance. Would you do that now, Jesus? I pray these things in your holy, righteous, good, and glorious name.